This sermon content comes from Mercy Village Church located in Barbersville, West Virginia, and you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. God, thank you so much for this church. <clears throat> thank you that you have just called us together to know you and love you. Help us today to put our entire identities in you. Help us to put every worry out of our minds and let us rest in your peace today. Teach us that what this world views as happiness is not true happiness. What this world views as success is not real success. Thank you that you have sent your son to die so that when you see us, you don't see our sin. You only see his perfection. Amen. So... Thank you guys so much for having me back. It is honestly a, just an honor to get to be just a small part in the uh, massive work that God is doing through Mercy Village Church. Um, if you're taking notes, we're going to go ahead and jump right into it here. I want you to make a list with two columns. One's going to have success, and the other is going to have failure in our culture. So if you're not taking notes, that's fine. You can do this mentally. But... I want you to just take a couple seconds, and on the success side of that chart, um, I want you to take just a few seconds and think about what true success is, how you truly view it. Yes, you could give a Sunday school answer, but honestly, in your life, what do you view as success? Go ahead and jot those things down now. I'll give you just a second. All right, if you're not done, that's fine. I'm going to go ahead and start. But um, me, and my wife, me and my wife Emily last night, we did the same thing. We wrote down a list of what we think is success as, long, as, as well as what culture, cultural success is. Um, the first obvious thing was, you know, being rich and famous. You know, has someone like Elon Musk or Bill Gates, you know, that person comes to mind, someone with more money and influence than they know what to do with. You know, the nice car, a fancy house, the most expensive things that money can buy. But, you know, we also have other gauges of how we measure success. You know, we have things such as how high of an education you have or, you know, the position that you hold in your job. You have earning respect from the people around you. You know, you're achieving your personal goals or maybe it's the number of friends you have. Or I, I feel like a really common thing and something I've been thinking about here a lot lately because we're getting ready to have a kid is, you know, have you raised good, hardworking, uh, good children? You know, that's kind of the ways we measure success. So the common factor of all these things, I think, is that success is being and doing the best that you can be and do with the hand that you've been dealt. You know, it's, or even going above that, you know, doing better than, than what you, people expected of you. You know, since, so now that we have this relative idea of success, what does the opposite of that look like? How does our culture define someone who is, you know, a failure, someone who is unsuccessful? So a lot of those answers you have, I'm making some crazy noises there. A lot of those answers you have might just be like the antithesis of what you wrote in the first column. And that's fine. But go ahead and take a second and uh, think to yourself or write down in the other column for failure a few characteristics of what you think failure or being unsuccessful is.
Israel. So we tend to be, you know, we tend to view being unsuccessful as, it's kind of a wider spectrum, I feel like, than success. You know, on one extreme, you have people who are homeless or, you know, they can't stay sober, drug addicted, and, you know, the poor man on the side of the road who uh, doesn't have anywhere to live. But then you have, you know, very smaller categories for that as well. And me and Emily made a list of that. And so, you know, you have people who maybe have a limited education, only, you know, only a high school education. Or they work manual labor jobs and flip burgers and swing hammers. And, uh, you know, maybe you view that as unsuccessful. Or you have adults who still live with their parents or, you know, live with a roommate. Or maybe it's the high schooler who got pregnant and had a kid at 16 or maybe, you know, on the other end, it's the 35-year-old who was never able to have kids of their own. Or, you know, maybe it's going to college for five years for a four-year degree, going tens of thousands of dollars into debt, and then just to work a job that has nothing to do with the degree you got. That's exactly what I did. Um, but, you know, really, it's just whatever doesn't fit to your ideal vision of success in the perfect life. So I'm going to list a bunch of facts here about Jesus. And you tell me which of those categories of yours that you made on those lists that he fits into closest. So, one, he was born into the peasant class in Galilee. He was the child of a teen pregnancy. He worked as a carpenter. His only formal education that we know of was in the church. He describes himself as being homeless. And he dies at the age of 33 with no real monetary value or anything to give anybody else that we know of. So one thing I see very clearly is we have a very messed up view of what success and failure is in our society. You know, we say work hard, be your best, and whatever that comes out to is is success. But the Bible tells us that there's only one human being that lived who was successful, and he looks nothing like this list that we just created. So today we're going to be going through Luke 16, 19 through 31. And this is a parable that Jesus told about two very different men. One man named Lazarus, who is not the same Lazarus in uh, John 11, who died and raised from the dead, which is kind of confusing because it's kind of a similar story, but it's not the same guy. And a uh, rich man who was not named. So verses 19 through 21 say, There is a rich man who is clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from a rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So we have on one hand the rich man, and on the other the poor. The rich man is clothed in purple and fine linen. So this is like the equivalent of saying he had on the nicest suit and a Rolex watch. Not only did he eat every day, but the Greek here kind of shows it's he ate in a manner that he wanted everybody to know how good his food was. You know, he wasn't going to McDonald's and getting a, something off the dollar meal. You know, he's going to Longhorn or, you know, Main Street or, you know, the 21 Club at the Frederick and getting a $45 French fry. Like he wanted you to know how much money he has. Um, and then on the other hand, you have Lazarus. He was poor. He was probably homeless. He was covered in sores or wounds, either from leprosy or living in the streets. Um, he, unlike the rich man, did not eat every day. 
he probably didn't even know if he would eat that day or not. The rich man didn't even value his life, so he just, he just hoped that the, the crumbs of food would fall off the man's table and he would, he would get them. You know, the, the small piece of bread that fall on your lap when you take the bite of a sandwich. Um, in case you didn't notice, he's not eating the scraps that the poor man gives him after he's eating. It's not, it's not the crust of the bread that you know, we toss to our dogs once we, you know, we're done eating. He's just hoping that he gets something to eat, and that guy doesn't even value his life enough to give him the leftovers. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that the rich man didn't value him enough just to give him the scraps? Was it because you know, he saw him as worthless, just a, a waste of time, the world would be better off without him? Does he think that you know, if the man would have worked harder, if he would have had a better job, he wouldn't be in this position. He put himself here. Or is the rich man just so consumed with his own life that if someone can't serve him and make his life better, that he, you know, just, just eh, whatever, just get out of my way. I think it's super easy in this passage to look down on a rich man, to say, I would never act like that. But I catch myself doing that and feeling that way way more than I could, than I like to admit. So when was the last time truly that you gave of your time and money in order to help someone who was truly in need? Sometimes it's just so easy to get consumed with our own lives that we just forget what everybody else is doing around us. But that is what Jesus is calling us to do. So Lazarus has no food to eat, he has no place to live, and even the dogs came and licked his wounds. I thought that that was kind of an odd statement to throw in there that that you know, Jesus throws them the parable that the dogs came and licked his wounds. So dogs in the Bible aren't viewed very highly. You know, they aren't the same ideas of dogs that kind of we have in our house. You know, they aren't the golden retrievers in rain jackets sleeping on feather beds. Um, my mom, Paul would think this is hilarious. Cause he always, like every time I talk to him, he just makes fun of my mom's Facebook post. He's like, oh, you see what your mom posted? And he thinks it's hilarious that like I stopped following my mom on Facebook because I hate what she it's just the most ridiculous stuff. But he thinks it's funny, so but literally, my mom has this cocker saying, you know, and she treats that thing like it's a human, like better than anybody else around. And like the other day she sent me a text of this picture of her dog and it says she's like, Your little sister misses you and I'm like not my sister. And, uh, and the dog's in like the dog was like in a party hat. And I'm not a huge handle guy, so I'm like, this is silly. But here in the U.S., what Jesus is saying probably isn't as clear as, you know, when he said it in the first century. Dogs were the lowest of the low. They're the dirty, mangy mutts. They're strays. Um, they have no real owner. They're just pests. Waste of time and resources. You know, they're more like coyotes or coyotes. Um, the term dog is usually used as an insult in the Bible more than an actual dog being in there. So dog, if I had to take a guess, is probably the highest used insult in the Bible. You know, it's always describing someone who is evil or just unclean in the eyes of the Jews. So when studying through this, I noticed that there was two different interpretations of what, what that statement meant, that the dog licked his wounds. You know, like I said, the dogs weren't loving, cuddly pets. They were dangerous animals that like Lazarus, didn't know when they were going to get their last meal. So they were licking him because, you know, he could die from starvation at any minute. So he could be their next meal. So maybe they're licking him because they're hungry. But 
there's also a second interpretation, which I think is more probable. is that the dogs felt compassion for Lazarus. And when dogs have a wound, what do they do? They lick it in order to heal it. So think about that for a second. Take a drink of water here. The dangerous, starving, ravenous dogs who, like I said, like Lazarus, don't know when they're going to get their next meal, feel sorry for him. They're in worse shape. He's in worse shape than the dogs are, and he's waiting on table scraps like a dog. That's his community. His community isn't the rich man at the table who has enough to provide for him probably for the rest of his life. His, rich, his community is the dogs. I just think that that's kind of crazy to think about. But it's not uncommon for the world to view Christians like we're viewing the rich man. But we as Christians should be the first ones laying down our life to be helping others. They say, oh, they have their own, their own groups, they take care of their own, but are they actually doing anything to help anybody else? And a lot of times, unfortunately, that answer is no. We have tight-knit communities, and we are just caring for one another. But our calling is to be giving what we have to help others. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We need to lay down our comfortable resources and give them up so that others can experience the true joy that we have been given in Christ. All right, let's just go ahead and move on to the next few verses here. So, the poor man died and was carried, to the Abra- was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So we have no description here. It just goes straight from they were there at this scene of him eating, and now they're dead. So we have no idea of how they actually died, but I'm going to take a wild guess here and say that the poor man probably died first. He was malnourished. He was weak. You know, he probably starved to death or died of disease. And if I take a guess, the rich man probably lived a long, prosperous life and died of old age. But... The poor man went on to heaven to be with Abraham, and I see one thing in this passage pretty clearly. The poor man was not poor because he did something wrong in the eyes of God. In today's world, you know, you hear a lot of pastors on TV, you hear a lot of people say that if you don't have money or if you're sick, it's because you didn't have enough faith. You're poor, well, you didn't trust God enough to give you a good job, or you didn't work hard enough. You're sick, well, you must have sinned. Or you aren't praying hard enough that he would heal, would heal you. But listen to me today. Do not give in to those lies. This parable shows that Lazarus is experiencing joy everlasting and has zero blessings in this life to prove that he was a believer. God does not promise earthly riches. There's no promise that he will ever give you health or wealth or prosperity if you follow his rules. What he does promise in this life is joy everlasting but not based off of your good works, but based off of the works of Jesus. One thing I wanted to point out this text is not saying as well is that if you're rich, you'll go to hell. Or, you know, even maybe not as explicit, if you have wealth and you're following, if you have wealth and you're rich, that you're not following God's will for your life. But that's not the least bit true either. 
God blesses people with money, but it's how you steward it that matters. If you're rich because, you know, you cut down those who are in front of you in order to climb the ladder, then maybe that's true. But God gives money to put you in a position for his glory. Money is nothing except another means by which he gives us to show the world his glory and excellence. So another thing that set the rich man and a poor man apart in this text is that the rich man had a burial while the poor man did not. The rich man lived a big, flashy life, and everybody knew who he was, so everybody wanted to show up when he was dead. But, and you guys know, funerals aren't cheap, either. And the poor man lived an infinitely different lifestyle. Probably nobody remembered who he was. And I find that interesting, too, because Lazarus has a name in this text while the rich man doesn't. So God knows Lazarus. But the rich man just doesn't even have a name at all in the text. I thought that that was kind of my blowing. But when you die, how do you think that people will remember you? Are you content with nobody remembering you? Would you be content if the only thing I remember about you was that you loved Jesus, that nothing else even mattered? I pray that God gives us that kind of knowledge of his grace and love for us. So Lazarus went to heaven and the rich man went to hell. The rich man looked up and saw Lazarus at Abraham's side. And now we're at verse 24. And the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So rich man completely misses the point. He, you know, he was sent to hell for the way that he was acting, and instead of saying, all right, I'm going to be repentant for my actions, he points straight to his desires. He's saying, I'm uncomfortable. He's like, send this guy who's you know, just a weak peasant outside of my door to serve me. And even in hell, we see that the rich man still views Lazarus as that dog. So as a servant to meet his needs, and the rich, all the rich man really cares about is his comfort. He doesn't give a rip about God's glory. So verse 25 says, But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who have passed from here may not be able to, and no one can cross from there to us. So when we die, where we land is final. There's no reduced sentence for good behavior because as we see the way he's acting, sin is eternal. And for those who die in Christ, we are you know, secure with God for eternity. The only way to become to Jesus is to be like the poor man. To become aware of your need and to know that you can't do this on your own. We have a heavenly father to give us what we need and to make us what we are not. We see nothing in this text that suggests that the poor man lived a really good life and did everything he was supposed to do. But what we do see clearly is a man who needs a savior. A man that knows that on his own he will come up short. And he was saved the exact same way that the guy he was walking with is, Abraham, by faith. Not by actions and good works, but through faith through knowing that God is the one and only true source of joy and happiness. All right.
verses 27 and 28. And he, the rich man, said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come to this place of torment. He's just saying stuff that he just doesn't know what's going on. He's really confused. He has no care for the why. He doesn't care why God would send them to hell. He just, you know, he doesn't want them to go experience torment. So in verse 29, but Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. From the way Abraham is talking to the rich man, the rich man knows. He, he was probably grew up a Jew. You know, he knew these stories and, uh, he should have known what was, what was coming for him. And so should have his brothers. But unfortunately, I think that this is one of the scariest things today. One of the scariest things in our American Christianity, especially here in West Virginia, is that we don't take the word of God seriously. You know, we think we're saved because we're Republicans or we, our parents are Christians, but we've never truly laid our life beside the Bible and said, I'm a sinner in need of grace. I hear so many people say, you know, I work hard every day. I'm a pretty nice person. I do more good things than bad things. But the reality is we need a Savior. We need to admit that without the power of the Holy Spirit, we aren't good enough. And without the power of the cross, we are rightly to be separated from God. So the parable ends like this. And the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. God said to him, or Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone comes back from the dead. So Jesus is just reiterating that if they do not believe the word of God, that there's nothing else that will change their hearts. The rich man was convinced. You know, he said, If you send Lazarus back, the brothers will repent. What do you think that it means to repent? What does it mean to, to not, is it just to stop doing what you were doing before? In Greek, the word for repentance is metanoia. Meta is the first part of that word, which means like after or beyond. And the root for noia, which is nous, means mind. So metanoia means to have something that's beyond the mind that you have now. So it's not just a change in actions, it's to be completely new, have a new brain, have new desires. So in this parable, the only way that the brothers can come to be with Abraham and Lazarus in heaven is to just be a, a different person. They can't just change the way they're acting. They have to have new hearts. Jesus is teaching that what could be known about God was already taught to them, and they did not believe. Their problem wasn't evidence, their problem was that they had a hardened heart. But that is true with all people. There isn't lacking evidence in this world that God is real or that Jesus is real. We see that in Romans 1. But the finished work on the cross is, is the only real thing we have to hold on to. The problem is that apart from the cross, we prefer our sin to what God has to offer. The only way a person can be saved is to believe in the finished work of cross, finished work for them on the cross. I think we overcomplicate this. We overcomplicate what success and salvation are. Do you know that you are a sinner and that you are bound for hell? Do you believe that the Bible, well, what the Bible says is true and that Jesus died so that you don't have to pay for that, that he paid for it for you? If you can check those two boxes, then you're the most successful human who's ever walked the earth. 
you have all that you will ever need, all that you, you have sure joy and happiness everlasting. If everything in your life were to fail today, if your house burned down, your loved one died, you're homeless, you can rest on the fact that you are completely secure in Christ. You could say, yeah, that's true, but Jesus doesn't pay my bills. You know, I have to worry about that still. I mean, we do. We live in a world that's completely ran by finances. And, you know, at the end of the day, whether your bills are paid or not, whether you're living paycheck to paycheck or not, can you rest in the fact, knowing that all you ever need is Jesus? We live in a world that it's not easy to believe these things. I mean, this is a type of peace that we can't just have. It's not just saying, all right, well, my bills aren't paid, I can be happy. That's not something that in ourselves we can even feel. That's an understanding that can only come through knowing and loving and having a regenerated heart in Jesus. I pray that he helps me know his love and grace that deeply because a lot of the times I feel that exact same way. So I'm going to bring this thing to an end with uh, some very simple application, just short and sweet today. I don't have any you know, cutesy rhyming points or acronyms to help you memorize it. Just a couple points that will transform your life and the life of those around you if you trust Jesus to do the work in your hearts. One, today put your finances, your kids, your entire identity in Christ because that's what true success looks like. I'm preaching this sermon to my heart right now because I have a hard time believing this. We, we have this conversation all the time. Like, what are we going to do when we have this kid? When we have, you know, more dirty diapers than dollars in our bank account? Like, how, I pray that God gives us a supernatural faith in him that only he can give us. We need to give complete control of our lives because we have nothing to fear. Because he has conquered death on the cross for us. And everything that we experience now is just temporary. He has already purchased us on the cross through the blood of the Son. Two, we have been given everything in Christ so we can give graciously with no worries. God has blessed us a lot more than we could ever imagine, and even if you feel like he hasn't, we should give freely of our time and resources so that we can show how much he has truly given to us. This doesn't mean you have to go sell your house, that you have to give all your money in your savings account to a charity. In fact, that's probably a really bad idea. But what it does mean is that we as Christians need to be looking for opportunities to give of ourselves and of our resources to love others and show them the grace that we have been given in Christ. So Jesus has done more for us on the cross than we can ever ask for. And the only real success, the only real success that exists in this world is to be saved by the finished work of Christ. To wake up out of death in the presence of God with your sins covered by the righteousness of Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for these people. Thank you that you have called them to a new work that you're doing through Mercy Village. Give them the supernatural ability to trust in your word when everything around us seems like it's crumbling in. It's hard to believe. God, let us supernaturally know, have joy, have peace, have happiness, knowing that you have us. That if we lost it all today, 
we have everything we could ever need in Jesus. That's not something that's hard. That's not something that's easy to comprehend. That's something that doesn't even make a lot of sense, but help us to know that. And uh, we love you, and we thank you so much for, for letting us be here together. Amen. Thanks for listening, and if you haven't already, we would love for you to join the work of God as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. You can learn more at our website at www.mercyvillage.church.